Good day. Today is November 1st, 2023. I'm Derek Fildebrandt, publisher of the Western Standard, and you're watching The Pipeline. I'm joined, as always, by Western Standard opinion editor, Nigel Hanford. Good to see you, Nigel. Good to see you back. Thank you. Also, uh, as usual, Western Standard senior Alberta columnist, Corey Morgan. Hey. Happy to be back, facing the way I should. Well, I suppose I, I, I guess I have to explain a little bit. I've uh, I've been gone from the show for a little bit. I had a little tumble from my motorcycle in uh, September. Turns out uh, a functioning uh, front brake lever is very important to have functioning on a motorcycle. Uh, so yeah, I've uh, been on a little hiatus, easing, easing back into work here, and uh, so I'm really just happy to be back on the show on the pipeline uh, with you, fine gentlemen, and all of you watching at home or wherever you might be. Uh, today we're going to be talking, um, whew, uh, well, I guess uh, about the new great opponent of the Trudeau Liberal carbon tax, uh, the Trudeau Liberals, uh, axing a large portion of the carbon tax for parts of the country that have tended to vote liberal, but mm -hmm. are now in significant risk of voting conservative. So the uh, big uh, chopping of the carbon tax for home heating fuel in Atlantic Canada and uh, the liberal response to conservative premiers on the prairie saying, hey, uh, we, uh, what about us? We'd like an exemption for uh, what we heat our homes with, uh, natural gas, which emits a lot less carbon emissions than home heating oil. And uh, the liberal response saying, well, you should maybe just, maybe elect more liberals and uh, then we'll talk about it. So it's the, it's the old saying, uh, screw the West, we'll take the rest. It's, uh, what was it uh, Gerald Ford said? He says, uh, uh, the more times go on, the more, what was he saying? more things stay the same. I don't know. Yeah, uh, that's I, right. The more things change, the more they stay the same. That's it. The that's more things the... change, the more they stay the same. That was it. I will admit, you pulled my chestnuts out of the fire on that one. I really muddled that one. That was almost like a George Bush uh, quote I had going. Thank you. That's okay. He was president. Yeah. <laughs> um, the Alberta United Conservative Party Convention starts this weekend. We're going to uh, kind of preview what we're expecting and uh, the coverage we're going to have. And uh, make genocide great again. Hamas uh, has really never, ever been subtle about its genocidal intentions. Uh, but we're going to talk less about Hamas's genocidal intentions and actions and uh, the open support for Hamas's genocidal intentions and actions right here in Canada and North America and the Western world more broadly. And how this has somehow become acceptable, politically and socially acceptable to openly support genocidal actions. And, uh, well, speaking of lest we forget, never forget kind of stuff, uh, Remembrance Day coming up, uh, the federal government uh, putting its orders through the military to ban prayer at Remembrance Day ceremonies for, for chaplains. And, uh, well, the Western Standards, uh, one of the Western Standards senior columnists, Linda Slobodian, uh, really picking up that story and shedding light on it and getting the federal government to reverse its ban on Remembrance Day prayer at ceremonies this coming Remembrance Day. Uh, before we get into it, though, we have to thank my favorite sponsor, the Canadian Shooting Sports Association. The CSSA ha uh, is one of Canada's leading firearms rights organizations. They've been on the front lines defending your right to own, purchase, and responsibly use firearms in Canada for years. Uh, if you're not yet a member of the Canadian Shooting Sports Association, you need to be. Go to cssa-cila.org or just do what I do and Google them and become a member today. Support 
standing with other gun owners in Canada and defending your right to be a gun owner. Okay, so looking at our first one here, tax the West, we'll take the rest. Um, so uh, four days, just four days before uh, the Liberals announced a regional car vote for Liberal seats in Atlantic Canada, uh, Environment Minister Stephen Gilbo, who, despite being a radical, at the very least, which you can't, the other side of the coin of being a radical is principle. He, there's no doubt he believes in what he's doing. He's consistent. I'd almost believe, I'd almost wish that he was a charlatan, typical politician who will just take the easy way out. He'd be less destructive if so. But at least he believes in what he's doing. And he said, uh, it would not be fair to have regional car votes. Uh, this is about the environment. This is saving the planet, for God's sakes. We can't have regional car votes for so-called affordability. This is saving the world. No regional car votes. Four days later, the Liberals announced that uh, <clears throat> Atlantic Canada is going to get a big break on the carbon tax. Good for Atlantic Canadians. Good for them. Uh, by uh, uh, not imposing the carbon tax for three years on home heating oil. And, okay, good enough, but what about the rest of the country? Because that's a source of home heating that is used pretty much exclusively in the Atlantic. And, you know, like, say, cottages in Ontario that are off the grid. You might, you might see it in a few places like that. But it's, uh, it's, uh, it's almost a minuscule, almost irrelevant number outside of Atlantic Canada for people's primary, heating people's primary homes. In the West, in Ontario, we tend to use natural gas, which emits... I don't know, uh, less than half the CO2 emissions of home heating oil. It's clean burning. And uh, so Daniel Smith, Scott Moe, uh, I believe Doug Ford stood up and said, well, what about us? We'd like one. Even EB did. Uh, yeah, yeah, in uh, in British Columbia, yeah, uh, in NDP. And, um, and the response from uh, Ottawa, from the Liberals, was um, no. No. Uh, because I, I guess, uh, I think there was a great uh, column in the line on this today. There's two groups of voters who get ignored uh, by the governing party. The group of voters who will never vote for you, say, the prairies for the liberals, and the people who will always vote for you, downtown Montreal, downtown Toronto. Both of those are people who are not going to go. It's, it's the margin call seats. And Atlantic Canada has consistently, for the last few elections, voted pretty big for the liberals. But the polls show them collapsing there to the Conservatives. So those are at-risk seats. And uh, I can't remember her. She's some inconsequential minister, but I think from uh, Newfoundland. She was asked about this, and she said, uh, well, if uh, the Prairies would like uh, uh, relief from the carbon tax, well, perhaps they should elect some more Liberals, and we can have that conversation. So uh, really uh, saying the quiet part out loud, uh, playing into the old liberal maximum maxim uh screw the west we'll take the rest um Nigel, this has been I, I don't think there's any silver lining for the liberals here uh do you think do you think atlantic canadians uh, is this going to be still any net political win for the liberals at all no oh, i highly doubt it not a net win certainly because even if they've made friends in atlantic canada they haven't many made any friends anywhere else so but they don't need friends in the prairies. They're not going to win seats here anyway. So, so what does it matter? But so who does the uh, who is going to be impressed by that? The, I mean, this, it was, first of all, the minister who made that foolish comment about electing more liberals, if that had been a conservative who had said something like that, 
That would be called a bozo eruption. Somehow or other, she gets a pass. Nobody I, is. I don't know about that. Like, uh, as tough as we're on a lot of the legacy media here, I think the, even the legacy media have picked up that. No, like, of course we do pork barrel politics. Of course we do regional asymmetrical federalism in Canada. But you're not supposed to say it out loud. You're not supposed to be so openly crass about it. You're supposed to be a quiet, greasy politician. Mm -hmm. You're not supposed to advertise it. So, like, even the legacy media, I think, have said, like, eh, like, come on, you can't do this. It was reported, but it'll go away. But, you know, really, this illustrates the fundamental fallacy of the whole carbon tax idea in the first place. In order for a carbon tax to work, it had to change behavior. In order to change behavior, it had to hurt people. And when it started to hurt people in a liberal stronghold, then they finally realized what they were doing. But it doesn't matter. They wanted to hurt people right across the country. They wanted to make it more difficult, more expensive to drive to work, to keep your home heated. Um, that's the iniquity of this whole scheme right from the very start. Years ago when everybody was saying, well, this would be a good idea. We'll just sort of ramp it up and it'll be like the proverbial frog in the boiling water. And, you know, they'll get used to it and they'll change their behavior. They can't. You, Your workplace does not come any closer to your home because there's a carbon tax. It's no easier to heat your house because there's a carbon tax. So they actually meant to impoverish people. Corey, uh, of course, people in the West are angry. Uh, opponents of the carbon tax are angry. But for the first time, there's been a massive breaking, if not shattering of liberal supporting ranks on this in academia, in media, even some non-parliamentary elements of the liberal constellation, if we can call it that. Supporters of the carbon tax and the liberals are pissed. Like, uh, you know, you have uh, Trevor Toome, uh, professor at the University of Calgary. He's been a big booster of it. Uh, and he, like, he, I say, an intellectually honest supporter of it. And he's saying, like, well, look, this shatters the whole thing. There's no point to the carbon tax now. You've, you're, you're undermining it. Uh, this is also, it's also clearly just not fair regionally. Uh, this has undermined liberal support from amongst prominent supporters of, of both the liberals or certain liberal policies. This is uh, Trudeau's and the liberals' signature policy this last eight years, mm -hmm. and Justin Trudeau just dynamited it. He lost all the credibility on two fronts. I listened to him babble a word salad yesterday when he was talking and spitting out how dirty uh, heating oil is and how it's so important to get people off it, but then, well, the whole rationale of your tax then would mean, if anything, you should increase it on the heating oil instead mm -hmm. of getting rid of it. it made no sense whatsoever, and I'm sure his own MPs were just what is he doing? And the other aspect was they were always saying this isn't going to hurt people because the rebate program will help them. Well, obviously it was hurting them. So it's lost. Again, even the proponents of the tax are livid right now because he's completely discredited the tax. And, and those of us who always opposed it just oppose it all the more. It's a it's a government in panic. It's the only explanation yeah. I can give. You got to wonder with. who didn't show up for the morning meeting. Yeah. You know, obviously there's somebody who normally manages to rein in these flights of fancy who just wasn't there. Well, let's, I, I want to try to, again, double down, refocus on the regional side of this. Obviously, the West being the most upset about it, as we tend to be with many liberal policies that with our regional... They usually target us. Yeah. yeah. Uh, 
And opposition to this was led by Saskatchewan in this case, and Scott Moe, uh, Alberta's tried to take a strong stance against this, but it's been more, re more rhetorical than in terms of, uh, of hard action, because uh, unlike in Alberta, Saskatchewan, most of these utilities are government, crown-owned. Mm -hmm. I don't like saying publicly owned, because that's, that's a bullshit word, but uh, they're owned by the government. And um, the Moe government said that, uh, well, because this is so grossly unfair, Saskatchewan is going to stop collecting the carbon tax on home heating fuels, so in this case, natural gas. Uh, because it's a crown corporation. They can just say, well, we're not recording the information anymore and we're not passing it on to Ottawa. Uh, sure, maybe you'll find that unconstitutional, but you're going to have to deal with, we'll settle that in the courts in two or three years. In the meantime, uh, no carbon tax. Um, Alberta looked at it and concluded it couldn't do the same because our utilities are not government owned. Uh, they're privately owned. And I have to admit, uh, I said this in the newsroom the other day, for a fleeting half of a second, it's the first time in my life I wished that the government owned the utilities. <laughs> <laughs> we could at least, at least enable us then mm. to not pay the carbon tax. Uh, but I, I suppose some some things are too high a price to pay. But um, uh, this is a bold move from Saskatchewan, Corey, that the government is just going to defy collecting a federal tax. I'm not aware of a case in Canadian history where that's ever happened before. That's a constitutional no, crisis. It's a tax revolt, and it is a constitutional it is a, crisis. It is a genuine tax revolt. I don't revolt. think enough people are reading into it, realizing just what the significance of what this premier is saying right now. And also, perhaps, though I doubt it, maybe some central Canadians will get it into their head just how inflamed things are getting west of Ontario. We've had it, and our leadership has had it. Scott Moe wouldn't be saying that if he didn't feel he had public support to take such a stance. And the only reason Premier Smith isn't taking such a stance is she doesn't have the tools at her uh, feet to be able to do it, but she's still strongly in opposition. I, I, I'm astounded, actually. I, I wonder if we don't, though, if there might still be options. Uh, you know, I'll put it to you, Nigel, but you know, I suppose this is a very legalistic question. But perhaps the government of Alberta could indemnify companies that refuse to pay it. So let's say NMAX. Uh, okay, NMAX, uh, we're, we're instructing you to stop collecting the carbon tax and giving it to Ottawa. And any legal actions, the cost will be completely covered by the government of Alberta. That, that would be a way. Although, I mean, a lot of these corporations, they're, they're risk adverse. They're, I'm, not, I'm not sure if they'd be willing to do so. But I mean, um, I really hate seeing Alberta leg Saskatchewan <laughs> in our fightiness on something like this. Well, I don't think that's going to be the perception because we've already got the Sovereignty Act out there, our opposition to Bill C-69 clearly stated, I mean, if, if Scott Moe, I would never accuse him of lagging, but Danielle Smith has certainly been out in front in anything, in any kind of confrontation with the with Their Ottawa. spirit has been, but in terms of so, concrete actions we can take in retaliation, Saskatchewan's got a stronger hand here. Well, they do, and, and they're using it, and power to them. I, I, I Hope nobody goes to jail, but uh, that in itself, I think, would appall people, all parts of the country, regardless of what they think about the issues. Because when you start taking on the elected representatives of the people, you are. I, I think you're, you might be ahead of some some people listening and watching that uh, the legislate a lot of this legislation, uh, federal legislation gives the federal government the power to use the criminal code of Canada to imprison politicians that do not 
um, fall in line with federal uh, emissions yeah. uh, mandates. So because it's under the Environmental Protection Act. Yeah, so I, I think uh, I just want want folks to know yeah. that that the federal they have an exercise as far as we know, mm -hmm. but they have the ability to jail provincial politicians that do not fall in line with federal policy, which is unprecedented. Now, if you really want, if you as a as the prime minister of the country really wanted to drive uh, a wedge between Western Canada and the rest of the country, that would be the way to do it. Yeah, uh, and I, I actually, even in Ontario, even I don't know what Quebec would think about it, but in the the fact is that in a lot of ways, Alberta and Quebec want the same things constitutionally. I don't think Quebec, on principle, even if they like the reason that uh, yeah. an Alberta politician would go to jail or a Saskatchewan politician would go to jail, I don't think Quebec, on principle, would be in favor of Ottawa's ability to jail provincial politicians for not following federal law. No, I'm sure no. they would not. For all kinds of obvious reasons, so I think that actually is a line that the federal government can't cross. They can threaten, they can bully, but when it actually came to it, I don't think they will. They would the never optics. Dare. I mean, uh, it's pretty well, bad. You know, I'd be out there front and center. Yeah. And you know what I'd propose yeah. in such a also, if, if you <laughs> want to be a claimed emperor of Saskatchewan, Alberta. The best way to do it is to get thrown in jail yep. by the federal right. government for not imposing a tax on your own people. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's mm -hmm. that's that's good politics if I ever saw it. Uh, I don't know. Uh, I guess let's, I'm not sure. Let, not that none of us are are from the Atlantic, or I think particularly understand them. But I mean, they're Canadians. We have some insight. We know people out there. Pork barrel politics, it's everywhere in the democratic world. It's a regular thing, and it's everywhere in Canada. But I think it's got a little more currency and explicit expectation in, in the Atlantic than here because we tend, only not, we tend not to be the beneficiary of pork barrel politics <laughs> to the extent that Atlantic is. But this, this is so open and crass, especially when the, men, the liberal minister said, well, if you want it, you've got to vote liberal too. Like You're just not supposed to say that out loud. Uh, Nigel, do you think this is going to get much mileage in Atlantic Canada? Because in three years, if they re-elect the Liberals, they're going to pay the carbon tax anyway. And the Liberals have said said as much. And I don't know, the greasiness of this, do you think this is going to play a, a decent role in shoring up flagging Liberal support in Atlantic? Or would it backfire even there? I, I, think, it, I think it possibly might. Um, you know, the thing about the Atlantic Canada is that they're smart, canny people, and they work the system. I'm thinking of uh, the oh, and it obviously works. Yeah, look at it. The, the last time, the, 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 the sort of the premium example of this was when uh, Kutkan was uh, prime minister, and you know, the time has come to do something about EI. It needs to be the same qualification period across the country. They lost Atlantic Canada because. Mm -hmm. There are certain reasons well, why. In that case, uh, the PCs under Jean Charest ran to the left yeah. of the Liberals in Atlantic Canada. Not elsewhere, but in Atlantic Canada, Jean Charest PCs ran to the left of the Liberals to save kind of the old uh, corrupt system. Of uh, right. So, you know, there's a, there's a long history of relationships between families and parties. My grandfather was a conservative and my grandfather was a, a liberal, whichever it happens to be. Therefore, I am a conservative. Therefore, I am a liberal. But when they can see how the, how the numbers match up, they're smart and they will vote 
according to what's going to work for them. So right now they're probably thinking, oh, that's great. We're going to, uh, we'll, we'll uh, that was nice of them. We'll save money now. What about in three years' time? Mr. Pollower says he'll get rid of the carbon tax altogether. Maybe we, maybe we should vote for the conservatives anyway. Mm-hmm. So I, I don't, I can't see this thing working for the liberals, even in Atlantic Canada. But it, perhaps it's the, perhaps they conceive it as their best shot right now. In which case, we're really in trouble. It does show you that it, it does pay to have a region's vote able to change. That's one mm-hmm. reason. One reason conservatives don't even do great. Like uh, Albertans don't even do necessarily great under federal conservative uh, governments uh, for Alberta, is because our vote could be taken for granted. I mean, they tend to screw the West less than the Liberals, and they they don't openly brag about screwing the West the way the Liberals might. Uh, and they they try not to actively harm it, but you know they're not going to they're not going to spend a ton of political capital for the West because the the vote's in the bag. There's you know in Alberta and Saskatchewan combined maybe three seats up for grabs that they could lose at worst if uh, if things tanked. So. so it makes you wonder sometimes what would happen if the Liberals said, you know, as long as we're reviewing policies, I think we actually made a mistake with C69. We're pulling it off the table. Would that get the support no. of Liberals in no, Alberta? They, the, the Liberals could re- repeal the carbon tax, the No More Pipelines Act, the, the tanker ban. I don't think it would result in a single new seat for the Liberals here. And, and so the Liberals, from the straight political math... Arts would be not smart to do anything for Alberta because we're just not going to vote for them because we don't trust them in their hearts. Just the way the conservatives are always pandering to Quebec and it still doesn't pay off. I mean, it it doesn't, the conservatives keep on trying to pander to Quebec and, you know, they have a fairly low ceiling. Although, you know, they might pick up a little bit, but it's not going to pay off big. So if, I, if I'm advising Justin Trudeau, I'd say, no, do nothing for the West. It's not going to get us anything. And it'll get him out all the quicker. Good. Yeah. I'm with that. Yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah. We'll bring things a little closer at home. Uh, this uh, Friday evening, the uh, Alberta United Conservative Party gathers here in Calgary. Uh, or is it now? Uh, is that on the Stampede Grounds before? It is. BMO. 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 Okay. Yeah. The BMO. Um, uh, for their annual, uh, annual general meeting, their convention, uh, their first big gathering since... Um, since since their victory in the last election, uh, last uh, in last May, uh, now the last time they gathered was it was in Edmonton, um, and uh, it was Smith's first convention as leader. Uh, people were kind of nervous about how how is this going to go because you know the party establishment was pretty uniformly against her, uh, but you had Take Back Alberta come in and make a very big splash. You know they had made a splash in the leadership before, but then they dominated. The elections for the for the board of that party and people never pay attention to outside of like the most hardcore of hardcore party members outside of that no one cares about these internal party board elections because they seem to be of very little consequence but these boards actually have a fairly big influence on the politics uh, of, of any jurisdiction uh half the seats were up for election last time and this take back alberta group won every single one that was up so they took half the board. Um, although I think the media portrayed them a bit much too much as like a uniform political party with internal discipline. They're not like that. It's a, it's kind of a loosely organized rabble that sometimes acts together and sometimes not. Uh, but they're, they're making a play for the other half of the board now. Um, Corey, uh, but Take Back Alberta has been painted very much as a boogeyman in the media. Uh, are you expecting much of a splash from Take Back Alberta and this kind of stuff at this uh, convention this weekend? 
Uh, well, I, I, if past performance is any indicator, they're going to sweep the other half of these seats. I mean, it's an area of high apathy. If you've got a group that's organizing well, it's relatively not that hard to take over all those board seats because people don't pay attention to it. How much splash there'll be again? I mean, there's the people who always oppose the UCP, so they'll try and paint it as if this boogeyman is going to, you know, take the party into the realms of the insane. Or, or, or admittedly, Mr. Parker's social media presence does make some people uncomfortable when he likes stirring things up. It's been rather spicy, yeah. Yeah, but uh, in reality, I mean, when it comes to the board versus caucus too, I mean, they basically they run the party and they can influence caucus. But caucus is caucus. That's up to Premier Smith and her advisors. The amount of impact it'll have on actual policy is still going to be limited. So I guess we'll see how much of a, a tempest and a teapot opponents to this will try and make of it. Uh, hopefully there's not too many screaming matches or sort of events that can happen at these AGMs that people will paint and saying, look, the party's all divided. But uh, I, I don't think it'll make too big a splash in the long, long game anyways. Now, Joe, I won't ask you if you think they're going to win it or not. I mean, it's, that's hard to say. It depends how well organized they are. The last convention, they were obviously very well organized. They swept every single spot uh, that was open. Now the other half is open uh, this time, including the party president's job. Uh, although there, there seems to have been some effort to broker a candidate in uh, Rick Orman, who's, I think, seen as fairly trusted by both the establishment and the more populist insurrectionists and take back Alberta. Uh, so I think there's an attempt to broker a piece in that position, but everything else seems to be a bit more contested. Uh, uh, do you think Smith at this point uh, is happy to have take back? Because take, take back Alberta is very much seen as an ally of Smith because she was the anti-establishment mm -hmm. uh, insurgent candidate in the leadership and benefited from their support. Um, but she is now the leader and sort of the new establishment. You know, that's the thing. Uh, the revolution becomes uh, the counter-revolution uh, once you take power. Do you think she's still happy to have this group active and pushing forward, or do you think she sees it as disruptive? I'm sure she has a, uh, an idea that these people could be difficult if she doesn't do what they think is the right and proper thing to do, but much more powerful for her is the very fact that she wins the confidence of the people who actually can return her as prime Minister, as premier in three and a half years time. So if she is perceived by the general public in Alberta as being an effective and successful premier, it doesn't really matter much what the ginger group inside the party is attempting to do because it's not ultimately going to go anywhere. It's a very British Westminster term. <laughs> I know what it means. Ginger group. Yeah, uh, an internal group within a party, like a pressure group within a party. Absolutely, yeah. 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 I mean, Corey is right. These guys can have their ideas about policy, but in the end, it's up to caucus as to what gets done. Uh, yes and no. Uh, Jason Kenney lost a lot of caucus support, but even when he went down, he still had a slim majority of caucus support. And well, he lost a lot of support in the public, he had more support in the general public than he did in the party. Uh, other than Prentice, who lost the general election and didn't have time to lose the support of his own party, every conservative premier from Klein to Kenny lost their job from internal revolt, not external. Uh, so you've got to keep your eye on, on several crowds. There's the public, how mm -hmm. you doing in the polls there. There's the caucus and the membership slash uh, party activists. 
And it's, it's been a combination of caucus and activists who have taken down every conservative premier, with the exception of Prentice, who lost to a general election since Klein. thing is, uh, Derek, they, are, they lose when they are weakened and were perceived to be weakened and not able to bring home the next election. That's yeah. when people are able to get the shiv in. Uh, I, you know, I mean, it's too early to say what people will be thinking in three and a half years' time. Okay. But uh, that's your strength, is the popularity with the public. Well, so far, Smith does seem to be strong with all of them. Caucus, the membership mm -hmm. slash activists, and the public. She's pretty strong with all three. But everyone is strong with all three after an election. It'll always get tougher the, the further you get away from the last election, the closer to the next. It's not going to hurt if she's able to make a fist towards Ottawa. <laughs> People yeah. will like that. Well, but she's going to have to actually do it. Kenny made lots of fists, but never threw any of them. He, he, he shook them a lot, but he never threw them. We'll see. Anyway. Yes. Okay. Well, onto a happier subject. Make genocide great again. <laughs> yeah. Right. We, we debated this headline, uh, our morning meeting today. Uh, it's about the crassest headline I've ever written. Uh, but I, I, I thought it captured things. Um, you know, we're... We're wearing poppies right now, but remembrance, you know, we talk in terms of genocide of the Jewish people in the 20th century, never again, never forget. And we're seeing Hamas, whose founding charter is genocidal, and their every action since their founding has been genocidal. Um, actually, I, I think we actually have a clip from a representative of Hamas. So let's just hear it from Hamas right now. إسرائيل دولة لا مقام لها على أرضنا إحنا الدولة لابد أن نزيلها لأنه بالفعل هي تعتبر كارثة أمنية وعسكرية وسياسية للأمة العربية والإسلامية يجب أن تنتهي لذلك إحنا لا نخجل من نقول ذلك بكل قوة إنه إسرائيل لازم نأدبها وحنأدبها مرة تانية وثالثة ومش هذا حتكون طوفان الأقصى أول مرة لا حتكون تانية وثالثة ورابعة لأنه إحنا لدينا إصرار ولدينا قرار ولدينا إمكانيات أن نقاتل وأن نحارب لكن كما قلت لك بدنا ندفع ثمن نعم إحنا مستعدين معلش بدي أقول لك بشكل واضح إحنا اسمنا شعب الشهداء ونفخر أن نقدم شهداء إحنا لا لا نريد أن نمس لا بالمدنيين ولا أن نلحق الأذابهم لكن أوقات لأنه في تعقيدات في الميدان صارت في منطقة موجودة وكان هناك في احتفال وكان في سكان وفي منطقة واسعة ليست سهل على امتداد تقريبا 40 كيلومتر بس يجب أن ينتهي أن ينتهي وين؟ بس ينتهي بقطاع غزة؟ ينتهي إلى لا بتكلم عنه كل الأراضي الفلسطينية كل الأراضي الفلسطينية يعني زوال طبعاً. إسرائيل؟ آه طبعا وجود إسرائيل غير منطقي وجود إسرائيل هو البخل كل هذه الآلام والعذابات والدموع والدماء هي إسرائيل مش إحنا إحنا ضحية الاحتلال نقطة وآخر السطر لذلك ما حدا يلومنا إحنا شو اللي بنعمله في 7 أكتوبر في 10 أكتوبر في مليون أكتوبر إحنا اللي بنعمل مبرر It is justified مبررة All right uh, So pretty clear This is not about getting Israel out of the Gaza Strip and the West Bank This is about getting the Jews out of the area they call Palestine Period And getting them out uh, from the, When they say from the river to the sea Palestine will be free That means dead No Jews Judenfrei. Uh, and, uh, you know, it's cloaked in decolonial and uh, oppression, social justice language. The left has really unmasked itself here. Uh, Jen Gerson at the line, I, I think that's the second time I quoted their columns today. She had, she had a great, great piece on how the left has unmasked itself here. And it's not universal. Uh, there have been some more reasonable liberals out there who have been appalled at what they're seeing on their own side of the fence like holy shit guys this is this is not us um 
you know, uh, the Jews weren't just a fashional minority for a while, and now we've got other more fashional minorities. There, there are people that must be protected. Uh, but uh, th this is open support for genocide, and it's either being a, a certain denialism among the domestic left in the West or among uh, certain political... conservatives being just as bad, actually, I'll say on social media, I've been getting it from both sides when I talk in this issue. Uh, how so? They, they, how so? It, oh, it's, it's the Zionist conspiracy theory. Those Zionists have to be wiped off the map. It's just those Jews controlling okay. everything. And this is coming from crazed right wing. Okay. So the, yeah. the crazed left and the right have actually found some common but that, ground. But that is the, okay, when I say far right, I mean far yeah, right. Yeah. The extreme, genuine crazies, not, you know, uh, how we would get called far right. Yeah. The, 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 there, there is a hundred miles of difference between us far right and their far there's, right. There's always room to move over. Yeah, yeah. There, yeah. Uh, but support for what Hamas is doing here is among the mainstream left. Union bosses, academics, even uh, uh, politicians using a bit more veiled language, but supporting what's happening to some extent. And it just seems to be a mainstreaming of support for genocidal actions or quasi-genocidal. Like, you know, you had um, mobs of uh, uh, pro-Palestine, pro-Hamas activists uh, going through Toronto outside of the Landver uh, Cafe, uh, a chain of Jewish restaurants. Um, Jews that make schnitzel. So I, I got to try these people out. I actually walked by that restaurant in uh, Toronto uh, a couple uh, this summer. I, I really should have gone. Um but uh, also going, even protesting and threatening outside of a Jewish community center with daycares and a pool inside. Like, oh, students it's clearly, on campus. Jewish yeah. students this on is campus clearly not an Israel thing, so. as, and Israel's just another state that we think is oppressive and colonial. It's, they're outside the Jewish community center. It's friggin' clear. And we've seen this shit before. I, I just don't know, at what point did open support for pogroms and genocide become politically acceptable in Canada. Like, like when did this, when did the switch flip? It's been a slow growing thing though. We've seen the rumbles, we've seen the outrage. Some of us have gotten offended when you'd see some of these academics and some of these students over slower boil-ups and you'd see that language coming out and people have called it out. It's been there. It's been sitting under, just under the surface. It's like Jen said, the mask came off, but it was always there. And this event has just exposed their ugly faces for what they are. And we've allowed it. We should have nipped this in the bud decades ago. And now it's a rot that that that's we're seeing in front of our faces, and it, it's vile. And uh, but still, we're cut flat-footed. We didn't realize how bad this is until it's been exposed like this. I, I agree. It's been there. It's been there for a long time. It's been under the surface, and it's bubbled up here and there. We, we, like we've seen it. We've called it out. But this is a whole new level. Like I don't ever recall marches reminiscent of pogroms marching through. Toronto. When you're, when you're I, I've never seen that. Intimidating before. people outside of Jewish-owned businesses. For those who are historically ignorant, look up Crystal Knot and see where that began. Yeah. Because you're only a short way from smashing the windows out of that place and and putting painting on, on the windows of the others. It's, well, it starts with you know outside yeah. the Landwehr Cafe, they're saying boycott. You know, boycott the Jews here, and and that's that's kind of where it starts. It started with boycotts, not smashing the windows yeah. and burning uh, synagogues. It started with boycotts. Then you get to vandalism and and property violence. Yeah, we're seeing the word. <laughs> then you get to, you know, um, lethal violence. But 
something has changed. This, this has been bubbling along for a long time, but at what, when, when did this switch flip? Because like this is different than in the past and it's very different. Yeah. So uh, in preparing for this discussion, I went through several of the clips of the, uh, of the, of the main stories like at uh, York University and uh, uh, in Toronto and there was a law school and quite a lot of times you, you see the people with the microphones look like they would fit in pretty well in Gaza. So to what extent is this a, uh, a rejection of Israel and Jewishness by what I might call mainstream Canadians? And what is, to what extent is it the actions of people who we tolerate among us and when times are quiet, but who, when they have an excuse, come to the surface and present this remarkable picture as if Canada was awash in hate. I don't believe it is. Mm -hmm. And I think that the people who do not hate and the people who, uh, you know, need to step forward. I, I'm not, I don't buy the sort of silence is violence argument, but I was pleased to see that in the story that highlighted the activism and the protests and the violent language in some of these universities, the university administrations actually did step forward and say, this is not anything that we support. The students' unions do what they do, but we totally reject this. There needs to be more a public rejection. And I would like to see maybe some of our political leaders, you know, the government itself, well, stepping out and saying, yeah. this won't do. And a police presence to make sure that if they are boycotting a, a restaurant or something, nobody gets hurt. There's kind of, I think, two big pillars to these the very violent and dangerous language and actions we're seeing on the streets right now. And, oh, God, this conversation could get us in trouble with the CRTC and we're going to get kicked off TV here and cable. But we, we, we've got to have it, at least respectfully here. There's the domestic left, for lack of a better term. Mm -hmm. The left, you know, it's unions, academia, and, you know, they consider, well, Jews are practically white and white people are bad. Uh, and this is a... This is colonial oppression, social justice thing. That's how they see it. And then there's diaspora communities coming from the Islamic world. And I guess there's just a, a brotherly sense of uh, solidarity and belonging among fellow Muslims. And, and I can appreciate that. Okay, you, you have something in common, your brothers in arms kind of thing. And I get that, but they're bringing the politics of that and the hate of that to here. And, you know, mass migration, uh, Immigration, to an extent, is generally a good thing. It's a country of immigration. We're built on it. We have to continue doing it. But I, I, I suppose the floodgates of it have meant that the electoral calculation in Canada changes, and it's not in favor of the Jews. The Jews are roughly, what, half of a percent in Canada? Tiny minority. It's a, it's a pretty tiny minority, although apparently you run everything, right? Uh, so, uh, but you've got then, but Islamic migration is very large and and the islamic community in canada gets bigger every single year and they tend to have larger families and and that's fine i've got no beef with it i don't really care about people's religion but it's obviously having an effect now on our domestic democratic politics and the politicians look at it and like to, we can go back to our first conversation about atlantic canada this is electoral math these guys are looking at numbers and the jews don't have the numbers. 
And so when it comes to which side are we going to take here, parties that tend to rely more on some groups, they're going to follow the diaspora politics. I honestly like to think, though, because we have a huge Islamic population. And we got to remember, and it's easy to look at, yes, it's predominantly Islamic people or people of Islamic heritage protesting on the streets, but that's a tiny minority of the hundreds of thousands, if not millions of, yeah. of Muslim individuals who are staying home, who might even, again, lean a bit in this fight, but they're not of the genocidal screaming pro-Hamas. But we got to get, where and, are the and, people and, come out saying, not in my name? Yeah. Like, Muslims coming onto the streets, and, and we know they're there. I've got neighbors who are, and they're disgusted by this. They want nothing to do with it. But, you know, this is, I, I had kind of a long Twitter rant on this uh, the other week. I saw that. Yeah. It's time, uh, you know, Muslim, we can't fix this. Uh, what was it? Dennis Miller said, like, we look like Johnny Winters in the Wu-Tang Clan. We're not a part of it. We can't do it. But, you know, the, the Islamic world, the Islamic community, Muslims have to wrestle with this problem. It's a real problem. And I know you're not supposed to say it out loud. God, we're going to get kicked off. CRTC is going to kick us off the cable, but we got to say it. They have to deal with this issue themselves and internally. And, you know, we need to see Muslims on the streets saying, not in my name. You can't kill people. You can't commit atrocities, murder, rape infanticide in our name and, and we're not seeing it yet and i don't know, maybe people are just afraid to do it i don't know i hope it tilts i mean we're seeing some differences in in nations that you know i mean part of this whole thing i mean it's a long discussion but part of the issue hamas had was the normalization that was starting to happen between israel and saudi arabia and saudi has long been a haven of some pretty extreme views and things mm -hmm. and they've been they've cut back on some things of the normalization process but they've also been pretty restrained they're not being Right, supportive of Hamas and, and things like we're it's a slow and when it's this horrifying we wish this the change would be faster but I do think that in the in, in the Arab world the Islamic world we're starting to see some shift except around that hotbed when you get close to there Jordan Syria Egypt uh, you know it's still on fire and I don't know you know to saying. Derek's point about electoral maths the government of Canada could afford to be a lot stronger in its condemnation of Hamas because it's not like the conservatives under Polliver are going to move in and scoop up that vote. No, but the NDP yeah. can. The NDP, the NDP has been playing hard politics on this, saying, calling for ceasefire. And ceasefire is code for uh, let, let the hostages die. Yeah, let the hostages yeah. die and let the terrorists continue to launch uh, rockets in. Just and stop over military incursions. And they would lose heavily because if this is if if we are to, if we are correct. But this is a problem within a certain community, a noisy community. That is not going to push the NDP over the top. Well, the NDP doesn't isn't trying to go over the top. The NDP is just trying to be as big as it can be and exert influence. And you know, you can ally that diaspora community with you know the Fred Hans and other extremists on the domestic left, for lack of a better term, in Canada, you know, unions, academia. There's an appetite for it. Uh, so, you know, it, 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 the liberals are very electorally sensitive to this. They could lose that support very easily to the NDP. It, it sure might not go to the conservatives, but it's not a two-party system here. You can go completely the other way. Uh, at the same time, you know, we're saying we, they, could lose to, they could lose to the NDP, but we're also saying that there's a lot of people within the Islamic community who are just horrified by this, not in my yeah. name. I say that the government of Canada needs to be a lot more forthright on and, this. And there's got to be some liberals who put conscience ahead of political expediency. Yeah. And, 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 and I think there are. I think there are. But uh, we're not seeing a lot. Not enough. Okay, we have very little time left. So I'm largely going to throw this just to, to, to Nigel, but uh, uh, 
federal government imposed through the Department of National Defense uh, that uh, this coming Remembrance Day at ceremonies, uh, chaplains are not to make prayers. I'm not really sure what a chaplain's supposed to do in the Army, Navy, and Air Force if they're not supposed to pray at Remembrance Day. I thought, like, that's the one time a year mm -hmm. if you're in the military where you really see the chaplain and even non-religious people are like, well, the guys who died were mostly religious, so yeah, there probably should be a prayer. And But they were ordered, I guess, in the name of diversity, equity, and inclusion. Uh, no prayers, chaplains. And, uh, well, that story was broken by the Western Standards, Linda Slobodian. Uh, we have very little time, but I'll, I'll just... Tell us what happened. Look, Linda got hold of it. She found it. Uh, somebody tipped her off. She started writing about it. This story was ignored by the mainstream press. I, I think will, it's still been ignored, right? It has. We will give some credit to Epoch Times and um, Rebel News, I think, also uh, picked it up. But Linda Slobodian was first and fastest and got this out and kept the steam in it. And it was her writing that finally embarrassed the government of Canada into instructing the chaplain general to lift that stupid order. The, um, the government of Canada is not a friend of religion in general and has made several attempts to just marginalize it in the past eight years. Uh, this was a particularly outrageous example and I say kudos to Linda. Yeah, this is uh, one of those great examples of journalism making a real difference. Yeah, but notice it was not the mainstream media that took an interest in this. They haven't even reported on it to this day, no. even though there was a policy and the policy was overturned. Yeah. Never happened. Exactly. Yeah. Well, that's uh, that's a good news story in the lead up to Remembrance Day here. I love it. And that reminder to folks then, support your independent media because the mainstream won't do it for you. Amen. Amen. Amen and amen. Well, Corey, Nigel, thank you for coming. It's uh, great to be back at the table with you. Mm -hmm. And great to be back with all of you. Thank you very much. Uh, make sure you tune in this weekend. We're going to have lots of coverage from the Alberta United Conservative Convention here in Calgary. Thank you for being with us, and God bless. Canadian Shooting Sports Association. Without the CSSA, our gun rights would have been taken long, long ago. These guys are on the front lines uh, helping to draft smart and intelligent firearms regulations and legislation in Canada and more importantly, educating the public about how we keep guns out of the hands of the wrong people. To become a member, it's absolutely worth every penny. You can become a Western Standard member for just $10 a month or $99 a year for unlimited access.